Okay, Acts chapter 2. Peter's there, uh, speaking on what uh, we sort of call Pentecost, what is uh, known as Pentecost, and for the Jews was Pentecost. This first uh, amazing uh, sermon of the church, and we see there the effect that it had. I suggest to you that... um, as we come to these verses, we could actually become very discouraged as we, almost as we read them, let alone as we start to speak about them. Because when in our day do we ever see a response to our preaching like this? Uh, we've had Henry with us Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And as far as we know at this moment in time, not a single person has been saved um, through those events. Eternity will show. But as far as we can see, humanly speaking, at this moment, not one. And yet here, on one day, 3,000 people. Um, And the history of the church is that this isn't repeated. It is is unique in that way. The closest I think we come to it is perhaps in the South Korean army, of which they reckon some 65% are Christian, and they had a baptismal service at which 2,000 people were baptised in one day. They weren't all saved in that day, but a massive, massive baptismal service. And and that's unique in modern history. Does that mean that we can't learn anything from these verses because it's a unique occurrence? No, of course it doesn't. There is much in these verses that we can learn. I want us to start by seeing that uh, there are times when we need to answer people's immediate objections. Uh, Many of you will know that I have a very real concern Uh, that some, when they want to talk to others about Jesus Christ, actually spend all their time talking about things they don't actually need to talk about. Um, I think we all have our pet subjects, don't we? We all have our pet things that we we like talking about, we like studying, we like being interested in. And it just seems to me that some, when they go to talk to others about Christ, almost bring those things up and want to discuss those, although the other person actually hasn't got that as a problem to start with. And they seem to think that unless they've dismissed every argument of evolution, they can't start talking to a person about Jesus Christ as an example. Uh, And I really do think that all of these things that people will put up against Christ are only attempts to sidetrack what we need to say to them. Even as the woman at the well, when Jesus needs to talk to her about her need of him, um, she wants to start talking about where you worship God. Total red herring. And that's always going to happen. But there are times without question when someone, we start to talk to them and it becomes evident that there really is a very real issue in their life. It might be through some experience they've had, through some tragedy, it might be some form of belief, something that unless that's dealt with, they're not going to listen to what we're saying and they're not even going to understand what we're saying to them. And then we do need to deal with that issue, certainly. But just see how Peter does it here. He does it quickly, he does it clearly, he does it biblically. And the issue here is one that we probably don't come across very much today, uh, and that's that they think they're drunk. The situation is very simple. Verse 9, these men are there, from men and women from Parthia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Crete, Arabia, and so on. And yet when Peter stands up and speaks, every one of them hear him speaking in their own languages. Never experienced anything like that before. Crowd of people there, all different languages, all different nationalities, And yet they each hear these words coming from Peter as though he's speaking to them in their language. How are they going to understand this? Well, some of them, the answer can only be, they're drunk. It's drunkenness speaking. Now, clearly, all the time they're thinking like that, they're not going to give serious thought to what those words are saying. And so Peter just takes a moment to address that issue before he tells them what he wants to say to them. 
and he does it very simply, very quickly, he doesn't spend hours over it. He just attacks it from two directions. First, common sense. Obviously, Jewish society of that century were a lot better than Britain today because he can turn around to his first objection and say, look, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. How could we be possibly be drunk at this time? Might not hold as an argument today, it did then. If this was 10 or 11 o'clock at night, your, your argument might have some merit. Look, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, we can't possibly be drunk. And his second argument is straight out of Scripture. Look, this isn't about drunkenness, this is about what Scripture has promised will happen. And he takes them back to Joel, the prophet. And he's able to quote, and this is an encouragement to us to, to know how to handle God's Word, isn't it? And to know what God's Word says so that when we want it, we can use it and we can handle it and we can quote it and he's able to just stand up there and quote a great chunk of Old Testament prophecy and say, this is what's happening now. But what I find interesting, even as he quotes it, is this. He actually only needs to quote to answer their objection, perhaps verses 17 and 18. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. How I understand those verses is like this. In the Old Testament, those things were done by particular people. And, and what Peter is saying here is God's Holy Spirit has now been poured out on the whole church to proclaim the truth of Christ, to stand up and preach, to stand up and speak forth God's word and what God wants. And that's what you're witnessing happening. So why doesn't he stop at the end of verse 18? Why does he actually go on to verse 21? Can I suggest to you that he sees the opportunity, even in answering this objection of theirs, to turn their thoughts round to what he actually wants to speak about? So he carries on quoting the prophet Joel for another three verses, in order that he can come down to verse 21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that, folks, is what I'm here to talk about. It's basically what he's saying. Do you think we can do that when we talk to people? And they raise these objections. And they say, look, I'm not even going to listen to you because... Let me take an example. I don't even want to listen to what you're saying because my husband died of cancer and if there was a God of love, he wouldn't have died of cancer. And you can just know in that moment they're just not going to listen to a word you say until you just address gently in love but clearly the, the issue that suffering happens in this fallen world but even as we're doing that do you see what Peter's doing but I'm still going to try and use that to turn their thoughts to what I want to talk about that they need to call on the name of the Lord and be saved and so we, we deal with any immediate objections only the ones that are going to block them from listening to the message that we want to bring. Otherwise, we're going to spend all day talking about anything and everything under the sun. Why are there different denominations? Why do you have chairs and not pews in your church? Why do you use that hymn book? Why, why, you know, I mean, we can go through the gambit of things. And we're never going to get to what they need to hear. I bless Henry for that. I don't think that in his presentations he really said anything he didn't need to say. And he said everything he needed to say. And that's a, a great goal, isn't it? in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Deal with their objections. Secondly, show them Jesus. How many times have we said over and over again we need to show a person their sin, we need to show them their accountability for it, we need to show them the holiness of God, which we did, we need to show them the reality of the two destinations in his life, heaven and hell, which he did.
We need to show them the reality that by default they're going to hell. It's not a case that they make a choice and choose one or other of the goals. They're going to hell unless they do something about it, which is showed them. That they need to come in repentance and faith. But my friends, show them Jesus, which he did. Do you know, I, 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 I hear so many Christians, and I'm talking about here in the church, I'm talking about as you just look across what's happening in the church worldwide, and you look on the internet and read books and everything. The number of Christians that will spend so much time advocating bridge building and um, events at which people can come and just feel comfortable and just relate and you know, and you talk about uh, the wonder of Christian fellowship and you talk about the blessing of being part of a church, having uh, involvement and finding a home and finding people who love you and all of these things. And I'm not saying that any of those things are wrong. But that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't talk about Jesus, they ain't going to be saved. And it seems to me you can spend your lifetime building wonderful bridges to meet people and never get around to talking to them about their real need of a saviour. And I'm sure we all know people, well, we all know people who don't know Christ. And we meet them every day. And if we don't get around to actually talking to them about their own personal need of salvation in Jesus Christ, we haven't shared the gospel with them. Just look at this message here. Peter's address runs from verse 14 to verse 40, 27 verses inclusive. Of those from verse 22 to 36, 15 verses, 65% of all that he says is purely about Jesus Christ. Not not even about what they've got to do in response to it. 55% of his whole message is just about the person and work of Jesus Christ, purely. Do you see what a massive block of what he's saying to them is? You really need to understand who this person is and what he's done. Because everything, everything hangs on that. Can I suggest as well, because we haven't covered it in this series, and and it's something that is, I would suggest, missing out of nearly all modern day evangelism. And and I'm not suggesting for one minute it's essential, but I just find it interesting, the more and more I read the New Testament, how much it features in people talking about Jesus Christ to other people. And that's the resurrection. How many times as you go through Acts and you go through the New Testament and someone's talking about Jesus Christ, do you find them talking about the resurrection? It's prominent so often and it is here now now why do they make so much effort to focus on the resurrection it's the death of Jesus that saves isn't it? You know everything to a Christian is the cross of Christ, Paul says I knew nothing except when I was with you except Christ crucified So why is it that he sees so important him, Peter uh, and all of the others to talk about the resurrection? Can I suggest you two reasons? The first is this. It focuses the person's mind on who Jesus Christ is. What do I mean by that? How many people have you spoken to about Jesus Christ who will very readily accept that Jesus was a great moral teacher? 
They'll accept that he was a good man who didn't deserve to die. They'll accept that he died. They'll accept that he was crucified. They'll even accept, and many other religions will, that he was a holy man. He was a prophet. Even that he was a son of, the, of God. A God with a lower G. They will accept all of that. Well, they won't accept that he was God. And the resurrection focuses the mind on the fact that he was God. Who else can bring himself back from the dead? Who else has got control over life and death except God? No man has. Jesus said in John 10, verses 17 to 18, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Listen to this. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus Christ says, I lay down my life. I allow myself, I put myself to death. I cry out into your Father's hands, I commit my spirit and I cease to live. My doing. And I bring myself back to life again. I have the authority to do that. No one but God can do that. There is no greater proof in the life and work of Jesus Christ on earth that he was God than the fact that he brought himself back from the dead. And so when we talk to people about the resurrection of the dead, we're immediately forcing them to consider the claim of Jesus that he's God, he's not just a man. Everything else, up to and including his death, they could say, well, that just makes him a great prophet, a great teacher, a great miracle worker, an innocent man who died. What about his coming back to life again? How are you going to explain that? No man can do that but God alone. The second thing why I believe they did it, it focuses the mind on who Jesus is, it proves who he is, it also proves that what he claimed to do worked. You know, we're telling them that if you put your trust in Jesus, if you put your hope in him, you will be saved. Now what's the proof of that? The proof of that isn't that Jesus died. The proof of it is that he conquered death and came back to life again. Romans 4.25, we mentioned it the other Wednesday night. Uh, Many places in scripture it talks about Jesus dying for our justification. One place in scripture, Romans 4.25, Paul says this. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So what's Paul saying? Did he die for our justification or was he raised to life for our justification? Answer, he died for our justification but his coming back to life proves that his death justified us. So when we look at his death and say does his death justify me? If I put my hope in Jesus will I be saved? How can I know that if I put my trust in him I'm going to have eternal life? Answer, Jesus rose again. That's how we know it works. Can I suggest to you, next time you're talking to someone about their need of Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, just try this. Just say to them, just just tell me out of interest while we're chatting here about this person Jesus, what do you think of his resurrection? How How do you answer his coming back to life again? He's bringing himself back to life. And see where that takes you. Because I suggest to you, it will show you a lot about who they think Jesus was. It really will. 
And it's the key to showing them why what Jesus did for them works. You can trust Jesus because he promised that he would die and rise again. He promised that he had the victory over death. He promised that his life was so perfect that death had no claim on him. That he would defeat death and he would defeat Satan and he would come back to life and that all who trust in him would follow in his footsteps. And he did it. We've got no tomb to mark his place. We've got no headstone. We've got no place to go and remember his death. He's alive! Because he has won the victory. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13 to 19. Paul preached the resurrection, no end. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 to 19. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this, our preaching is useless. Why is our preaching not useless? Not because Jesus died. Our preaching isn't useless because Christ has risen from the dead. Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Why is our faith not a waste of time? Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. But it but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised either and if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile you are still in your sins then those also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost if only for this life we have hope in Christ we are to be pitied more than all men Paul says everything but everything hangs on the question did Jesus Christ rise from the dead or didn't he and he goes on but Christ has risen from the dead. You know, we really need to preach this. In our conversations and our talking to other people, we really need to say to them, look, just answer me this, what do you do with the fact that Jesus Christ came back from the dead if you're going to dismiss him as just a good man? No good man's brought himself back to life. Only God can do that. Before you dismiss that his death didn't do what he said it would do, how did he come alive again if he's just a sinner like you and me? How did he come alive again if he didn't pay the debt the death of sin? How did he come alive again if he didn't defeat Satan? He's won. He's done it. It's paid for. It's finished. It's complete. You can have absolute trust and confidence in him. That's why the disciples and the apostles were prepared to be martyred for that one truth None of them were put to death because they preached that Jesus Christ had been crucified. Everybody knew that. It was recent history. They were put to death for insisting that he come back to life again. And they said, we've got a choice. We either continue to live or we die for saying that Jesus Christ rose again. Jesus Christ rose again. Put me to death. And they gladly went. Because that's how important that truth was to them. And my friends, it should be to us. Lastly, three very simple things, very briefly. Make it clear, make it personal, make it persuasive. Make it clear. There were Jews there. Either Jews by birth or Jews by conversion from all these different nations. That's what they were in Jerusalem for. So, Peter just links it into the Old Testament. He shows how it's a fulfilment of prophecy. He shows how this is the Messiah, the Christ, the one they've been waiting for. He... he, he switches into where they are and he makes it absolutely clear. So didn't Henry make it clear? 
you know, I think anyone who went there with an open mind couldn't have failed to understand what he was saying. You know, let's, let's make it clear. Make it personal. No one wants to hurt another person unless there's something wrong with them. I mean, I mean if you enjoy going out and beating people with the gospel and seeing them cringe and in tears, there's something wrong with you. We, we don't do it to hurt people, do we? We do it to break them in order that they can be saved because we love them and we want to see them enjoying God and knowing that when this brief lifetime's over they've got an eternity with God. That's why we do it. We don't want to hurt them. But unfortunately there, there is necessary to hurt them in order for them to, to come to that point. So we've got to be personal. Look, Peter's personal. Verse 23, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Verse 38, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift. Verse 39, the promise is for you and your children. He made it so personal. Massive crowd of 3,000. And he says, look, it's for you. It's, it's for you. How, how are you going to respond? What are you going to do with Jesus? And it cut them to the heart when they realised that they had personally offended God. They personally sinned. They personally been responsible for the death of Jesus. And so finally make it persuasive. You know, we can go to these scriptures, so many of them, can't we? And we say, well, that was a really short sermon the guy preached there and, you know, that was a really short one and, of course, he only says three words. And very often in scripture, scripture just records for us the essential elements that we need to know today. Don't, don't think that that's all that was said. Look what it says at the end there, verse 40. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. This, this is, if you like, a synopsis. This is a cut down account of what he said to them and he just went on and on and on pleading with them, warning them. Save yourselves. Now, does that mean that somehow they can earn God's favour? Somehow they can be good enough? Somehow they can do various things? Of course it doesn't. That would be to fly against everything the scripture teaches. But scripture equally makes it clear that call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Those who seek him with all of their hearts will find him. There's, there's, there's a charge to put on the person that, that you are responsible for your response to Christ. Cry out to him, look for him, seek him, find him. Make it your most urgent business to be right with God. And we plead with them that they won't let that moment pass. Who knows if they'll have another chance? Who knows how long God's grace will be open toward them? Oh, my friend, are we speaking to people about Jesus? Are we using the opportunities every day that God gives us? Don't pray for opportunities. Just use the ones that are there. Pray that God will make you strong. Pray that God will give you the courage. But don't ask God to give you chances to speak to people. We've got them every day, haven't we? All we need to do is just open our mouths and speak. And pray to God that he'll use what we say to bring about his good purposes in saving the lost, redeeming a fallen humanity. We're going to...